Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and welcome back to part two of our LGBTQ&A two-parter with Kate Bornstein. We just posted a brand new interview with Kate, so you can find that right under this one in the podcast feed. And as a companion to that conversation, I also wanted to offer up this one that we had in May of 2018. Kate, for those of you who don't know, is a writer and performer, a trans elder. She's also the author of the memoir, A Queer and Pleasant Danger. The subtitle to that book, and I love this, the subtitle is The Inspiring True Story of a Nice Jewish Boy Who Left the Church of Scientology to Become the Lovely Lady She Is Today. And when I look past my own insecurities about posting interviews from so long ago when I was just a baby interviewer, I can definitely hear myself figuring things out and learning in real time. And when I look past that, I can see this fascinating conversation about how much has changed in the last 30, 40 years when it comes to how we think about, experience, and describe gender. And then to that last point, in our conversation about language and how much has changed, we do use the T word. So just a heads up there if you'd rather not hear it. All right, without further ado, here is Kate Bornstein. So you've been writing about being non-binary for almost 30 years. And rereading your work recently, I'd forgotten that you were not always embraced by the trans and larger LGBTQ community. I'm still not embraced by the larger LGBT and trans community. I think I'm celebrated by the larger community, and that's great because I'm celebrated as an elder. And I feel very warmly about even people who are upset with me because you go, Ah, isn't that sweet? You know, they're, they're working as hard as they can and they do not see yet what I've been trying to say for quite a while. What is that? That there's more to gender than two. Oh, I'm really surprised to hear you say that because I know that for the majority of your career, you're writing about gender being not binary, the spectrum. And for a large part of your career, that was a theory as we talked about it. But I feel like nowadays we talk about that as fact. More and more people do talk about gender as a spectrum. But when we get into the notion of a spectrum, then to start with gender exists in or existed in two dimensions. Imagine an XY graph, male and female. Okay, so everything depended somewhere in the plane defined by male and female, including a spectrum, anywhere you want, on male to female. That's still two-dimensional thinking. A third dimension that a whole lot of us, yes, I've got a loud voice, but it was it was an amazing explosion of people who were going, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about imagination? There's a third dimension of gender, imagination. And this puts gender beyond male and female, And instead of an XY graph, now we've got this kind of globe or cube, whatever shape you want to make it in. And then if you really want to get tricky and talk about gender fluidity, then we're talking four four dimensions because we have to add time. People talk about gender as if it is unchanging over time, but we're always changing our genders. And the problem is when people think that gender is the same all the time for everyone. And your thinking on that has actually evolved, right? You used to write that everybody was outside of binary, but it seems like you've changed on that. 
Well, I still think that. I, I, I think it's paradoxical. Yes, everybody's outside the binary because the binary is a construct. But the truth is, every, many, many people are binary identified. That doesn't mean they're not outside the binary. It means they've made the decision to act and live and be in a binary. Because that is what is comfortable to many people. Of course. And that I've never, never had objections to. What I have objections to is that holding sway over people who don't want that. So what is the the argument against you? You've said that you've been denounced over and over by the trans community. <laughs> you being non-binary is not actually harmful to me. This gets back to my loud voice. I, I, I take up a lot of space. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a known character. And when I say I'm not a woman, somehow people hear that and go, well, Kate Bornstein's not a woman, so what about you? And you go, oh, okay. And this is the way people think. What I say is assumed to be true for a whole lot of people, and it's not. And, and, and I've tried to make that point that it's not, but that's not hurt. So you're spoiling it for the rest of us is, is a common, common problem. I have to wonder if these arguments against you are coming from the older segment of our population, because the younger segment, I hear really like confirming everything that you're saying and repeating it back. I agree. There's a large number of young folks that I just go, oh, baby, I love you so much. You are living the life I've always wanted to live. And yes, 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 yes. And, and still, there are degrees of that. So yes, and these are people you meet. Remember, the people we meet, the people we hang out with, are not the majority of the people in the world. We've still a long way to go. I think people are understanding the notion of what people now know as transgender a lot better. Oh, you're really a woman. Oh, I get it. Or, oh, you're really a man. I get it. That is gaining traction in the world. And that's really cool. I think the people, the number of people objecting to that are, in fact, the old farts. You know, my generation and will be dead pretty soon. So that's a good news. There, There's an idea that trans is somehow monolithic. It's not. I wish it were. When I was coming out, when I was exploring all this stuff in the, in, in the 80s, there were transsexuals, men, women, boys, girls who had transitioned or were about to transition from one to another, to another gender. There were transvestites, people who dressed up for various reasons, enjoyed it, did it for sex, did it in secret, did it on the street and celebrated it. They were transvestites. There were street fairies. But there weren't, there wasn't much else. To be a real transsexual in those days, you needed a medical stamp of approval, which included, okay, you need hormones and surgery, and then you were a real transsexual. Well, in the late 80s, people started adding the qualifier, uh, are you a post-op transsexual? Are you a non-op transsexual? Uh, are you a pre-op transsexual? And all of a sudden, that got cool. And then the word transsexual it was was really excluding people. So we used transgender to include anyone who was fucking around with gender at all. And so transgender has been the inclusive term for a long time until 
May of 2014, when Time Magazine came out with Laverne Cox on the cover and said the transgender tipping point. And I saw that. That month is when I finished my chemotherapy for lung cancer. It's all gone now. I'm happy it's all gone. But I'm reading this thing. I'm going, what do you mean transgender tipping point? Because I knew like thousands and thousands of people were nowhere near a tipping point because of their transness. They couldn't get jobs. They were harassed in the street or beat up or killed. That's not anywhere near a tipping point. And then I got it. Transgender had been redefined in the mainstream. Transgender replaced the word transsexual. Because now, when most people hear the word transgender, they think, oh, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl has transitioned or about to transition from another gender. Great. The great stride that transgender people in those terms have made is that it is no longer tied to a medical decree. Doesn't need hormones, doesn't need surgery. So we've improved light years from when I was going through this. We're talking about all of these changing words. Mm -hmm. And when you were writing, I believe it was in the 90s, Gender Outlaws, you wrote, I'm not a man and I'm not a woman. Gender Outlaws, singular. Gender Outlaws was another book. Oh, uh, was it? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you wrote, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, period. And the sentence stopped. And now we have this word non-binary. Did that word exist back then? No, no. We didn't know what to call the system. I think I called it the bipolar gender system. And, and it wasn't being tongue in cheek. It was, the, there were, there was a, a line. There were two poles to it. But yeah, the only way I could define myself well was by what I was not. I, I said, I'm not man, not woman. That's me. And do you still feel more comfortable with saying what you're not? Or are you okay, now okay with this? Like, positive word. I like the positive word because it also expresses what we are in the negative. When we start saying, here's what I am in the positive, that time drops out of the equation because whatever we say we are is going to change. But whatever we say we're not, that's not going to change. While we're talking about language too and the evolving the evolving perception of gender, our understanding. Has your feeling on the word tranny evolved? I know you self-identify as that. Yeah. I, I, I don't insist on it anymore. I know that it can be triggering in the old sense of the word trigger, in that people who have been traumatized, when they hear the word tranny mixed with the tone anger, or even not, my sincere regret to hear that you've been traumatized. I think that the unfortunate part is that the origin of the word and what it communicates is beautiful. Thank you. Do you mind telling like the story of how the word came to be and like what it means before it was a hate word? Yeah. The word tranny was coined in the late 70s in Sydney, Australia, when the only work that trans people could get were the drag bars. Nobody would hire trans people. Again, they were transsexuals, transvestites, street fairies, and the only way they could make a living was in the economic matrix that is was and is the, the drag bar. Butch women would be bartenders and introduce the acts. Street fairies would hand out flyers and get paid for that. And 
the height would be, you know, the drag queens who would do the actual performing. And then there was a hierarchy in there. But they all got together. And if you remember Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the the animosity of the transsexual and the, and the drag queen. And they were just, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. It's been going on for a long time. But what they realized is, yeah, but we're family. And we need a family word. And Australians don't like words longer than two syllables. Australians becomes Aussies. Sunglasses become Sunnies. Barbecues become Barbies. And trans people became trannies. It was that simple. And so they were trannies. It was family. And that would calm things down and we go, okay, we are family. Okay, great. It's a lot how many, many people use the word trans now. As this umbrella term. Yeah, an inclusive term. Now, the wonderful drag queens of the day started moving to the States. Uh, Doris Fish in particular in the early 80s and brought the word with her. And, of course, then there were the transvestites and transsexuals and street fairies and, and everyone, oh, yeah, we're all trannies together and male to female and butch, butch women and passing women. Yeah, we're all trannies together. Uh, and then sex workers, trannies, trannies, and this is where it came a cropper because sex workers and porn spilled over into the cis, which wasn't the word, world, and people were ashamed, men, particular cis men, were ashamed of their attraction to trannies and tranny porn and tranny sex workers. And so because of their shame and self-loathing, they aimed that word as a hate word. Now, does that mean it is not a hate word today? No, it is a hate word today. And that's what I've come to understand. What I ask is that when trans people hear me use the word tranny, give me the benefit of the doubt. I'm not saying it with hate or anger or disparagingly. The place where trans is becoming a true or more true melting pot in the public view is in fact RuPaul's Drag Race, because many of the girls, several of the girls, have come out as transgender. And you go, oh, I get it. No, it's not clear yet. It's not one narrative, as you're saying. But they're messing with gender. Drag queens mess with gender and break all kinds of rules of gender. Trans women mess with gender. Even though they are binary identified, one of the cardinal rules of gender is once you've been assigned gender, you cannot change it. So that's breaking a rule of gender. That's being an outlaw in a lot of people's eyes. You're breaking God's rule in many people's eyes. So the fact of law breaking, the breaking of natural laws, is common to both drag queens and trans men and trans women. I know this is unanswerable, but what do you think is next? Where do you think we're going in terms of gender? The future of gender is its dissolution. The word non-binary is, is, is heralding that. Okay, the nature of the binary is the nature of a battlefield. It, it can't be anything else. That's all there is. That's what happens when you have either or. Shatter the binary. Wow. 
can't be done, but we can be done on an individual basis. We go, don't believe in it, and out we go, and I'm non-binary. Binary is any phenomenon defined by two and two only components. What we have now is a polynary. It's a real word, P-O-L-Y-N-A-R-Y. It's a polynary. And a polynary is any phenomenon defined by more than two elements. It's as simple as that. And the nature of a polynary is the nature of a playground. There's a possibility for coalition. There's a possibility for cooperation. There never was that in the binary. Now, I wrote these words in a play called Hidden Agenda, which predated my book, Gender Outlaw. And I said, gender is not the battlefield, it's the playground. I was very, very full of myself. And I really didn't know what I was talking about. I knew that gender was a battlefield. And I knew that gender was a playground, but I never really knew the mechanics for that. Now I know that. So I really haven't so much progressed in my thinking. I still think the same way, not man, not woman, but I'm a lot more nuanced in my thinking and a lot more forgiving of people who don't agree with me. I mean, for me, reading your book as a non-trans person, uh, it caused me to engage with my gender in ways that I never had and didn't know I was allowed to. And so I could be less rigid with my masculinity. I didn't have to follow historical or societal gender norms. And I think that that has to be where we're heading for everyone, too, in terms of the future. And I hope so, at least. I hope so, too. Sexuality is also headed in that direction. The binary was broken by bisexual and further broken by pansexual and asexual and ways of describing sexuality that have nothing to do with gender. Uh, BDSM, furries, uh, this is wonderful. This is, this is just a wonderful thing. Here's what's never spoken about in terms of gender. The desirability of trans. When you have someone who's mixing the signals, who's going, well, male and female, all at the same time, masculine and feminine, and that's an attraction, that's a turn-on, that's seen as perversion. I was talking about the future of gender and mentioned what I believe it is, which is the non-trans view. In terms of the future for trans people, I look forward to a future where they can walk down the street safely where they're not stared at, and where gender ambiguity is not considered anything out of the norm. Now you're assuming that people can read transgender people all the time. I'm thinking of more of my non-binary friends and people who, right. are, people who are visibly trans. Correct. Okay. So you're hoping for a polynary system of gender where it's a playground as opposed to a battlefield. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I hope that we're heading there quicker than it's taken us to get to where we are now. It hasn't taken that long. It's been less than 30 years, my darling. I'm 70. I just turned 70. In a blink of an eye, Time Magazine was talking about a fucking tipping point. Really? I'm going, holy shit! Um, See, I read that headline, the tipping point, the transgender tipping point, as being a tipping point about awareness and not acceptance. Interesting. Okay. Makes more sense that way. It makes more sense that way. But I can tell you this, that transgender people 
have taken it as acceptance. Okay, here I am, accept me. That's always been the way of a marginalized group when it becomes visible. I, I'm human, just like you. This was feminism. Women are people too. Accept me. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but that's how it's being taken. Is Okay, okay, I've reached the tipping point. Accept me, hire me, give me a job. Give me, get, let, me, let me pay the rent. Let me walk down the street safely without a bullet coming in my head. Going back to sex for a second. Sure. You are 70 years old now. Uh-huh. How has sex changed for you? <laughs> I'm not champing at the bit about it much anymore. That's a black and white difference from what you wrote in your memoir. When my memoir stopped before I moved to New York, and that was 20 years ago, my darling, sex has always been a wonderful, wonderful energy for me, and I've enjoyed playing with sex most all of my life. And, and I can mark it. I can mark it to the point when I was getting uh, chemotherapy and radiation from 2012 through 2014. I, believe me, sex is not the first thing on your mind or even the last thing on your mind. You're thinking, how the fuck can I stay alive till tomorrow? And two years of that is basically, it's celibacy. I've really embraced an asexual stance at this point in my life. I'm going, okay, this is new. And and at first I beat myself up for it. I'm a failure. I'm a failure in my relationship because, you know, my girlfriend is all about sex. It's, it's She teaches sex. She does sex. And we've opened our relationship. And I'm going, okay, all right. I'm pretty fucking happy without it now. Well, this is new. So that's, 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 that's kind of where I'm at right now. I don't think I've ever really come out and said that before. You seem very at peace with it. That's taken a while. That's taken years. Yes, but I am. Has that been as challenging as gender? <laughs> like, I, I, I guess. Yes. I, so much of me was, look how queer I am with sex, you know, fucking suck and oh, BDSM. And honestly, I think I could probably still do the master slave thing, but it really doesn't tweak me anymore. And I, slave was such an integral part of my identity. Oh my God, to be of service. And what I've done is I've now said, okay, I still want to be of service. Uh, that's, that's what underlies every bit of my work. It's just not done in a sexual scene anymore. Looking at your life, everything that you have done and write, write about, it has gone against what society tells you is quote unquote normal. So you are very open about how this like slave aspect being told what to do excited you to your core. And, um, there can be a stigma against listening to those feelings in you. And I also tie that connection to like a stigma against like gender and, you know, being assigned male and expressing anything differently. And it sounds like you are always just listening to what you want, to your gut. There's a Buddhist koan. Koan is a Zen teaching story. They usually make no sense at all. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping is a Zen koan. And you're supposed to think about that one for decades until you figure out how that really makes sense. 
there is no answer, but but it's a it's a koan people teach. The koan that's got me going has me had has had me going since the late eighties is this one: the way you do anything is the way you do everything. What the fuck? What? What? That's the whole koan. And if that's true, then anything I do mindfully is a rehearsal for anything else I want to do mindfully. Anything I do that I find satisfying is a pattern for anything else I might do that I would find satisfying. Sex and orgasm and sexual service and bondage. Uh, these were all one and pain. Oh my God. Um, you know, nothing like a single tail whip on you on, on your back. There's a ah, that's so that's like exciting. So all right, how does that translate? A great fucking conversation when someone makes a brilliant fucking point that hurts and is true. And you go, oh, okay. Now I'm starting to get it. And there's a big difference between sex and sexy. I haven't given up sexy. I like that. That's fun. But with my identity now, all right, for a long, long time, and, and maybe up till about six, seven, eight years ago, I was six feet tall. I'm five, eight now. You know, old people shrink. I'm little comparatively. I see myself as more little. And I'm old. Honey, you know, they oh, 70 is the new 50. No, it's not. It's 70, darling. And so I'm old. What I've tried since day one of cross-dressing was to be a lady. This was my mother's favorite identity. I know it's a, it's a matter of being gracious in any situation. And I've always tried to be a lady. So I'm little, I'm old, and I'm a lady. I'm a little old lady. And this is what I enjoy being nowadays. I love walking down the street. And I put someone just yesterday, they went, hey, grandma. I go, hey, baby. <laughs> this is great. And I can go, young man, might I have that seat? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you, dear. And So that um, goes back to the playground aspect of gender. Thank you. You know, people are afraid of getting old, and age and sexuality uh, affects all of us. Oh, my God, I'm getting old. I'm not sexy anymore. Maybe not. But there's lots of different ways to be sexy. I mean, I used to wear leopard print skin-tight gowns. Honey, if I did that now, uh, you know, who likes seeing cellulite? <laughs> no, no, nobody. Now I'm, I'm, I'm dressing all hippie chic, which is how I wanted to be when I was in my, my late teens and my early twenties. I always wanted to be that cute hippie chick. And to me, that's a kind of a sexy. So you find what you're capable of and you go, okay, I can do this. Old hurts. A great deal of pain in being old. I got to tell you, when I played King Lear in college, I, I was talking to my, my director. How, how do I really play age? I had played a lot of you know goofy old men on stage. I was a character. Oh yes, I can play an old man, you old gentleman. And I didn't want to make it a caricature. How do I play age? And he says, Imagine this: every day you wake up, something new hurts. 
And you go through the day with these new pains and old pains, and it affects how you move. And you go, oh, okay. All right, I get it. So age hurts. And with age comes a great deal of loss. Your kitties pass, your dogs pass, your friends pass, your parents, your siblings, and there's a whole lot of goodbye. But the perspective that you have when you're old, talk with pretty much any older person and they'll say, I wouldn't change it. No, 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 not that part. No, no, I love being able to see the world the way I see it now. And I think this whole idea of loss and pain, for me, the way you do anything is the way you do everything, uh, it's rehearsal for that great big moment we all face, and that's death. What could be more painful? What could be what greater loss than the great big fucking goodbye? And I, I look forward to seeing that mystery. I look forward to being as conscious as I can be, as free from grabbing for life as I can be. My fascination with death in my earlier years, up until I was uh, 40 or 50, took the form of suicidal thoughts, it took the form of suicidal ideation, took the form of suicide attempts, it was a fascination with death. I'm still fascinated with death. Uh, but I'm willing to rehearse for it. Do you think, still think about trying to kill yourself? No, I don't. In 2006, I wrote a book called Hello, Cruel World, 101 Alternatives to Suicide for Teens, Freaks, and Other Outlaws. That kind of cured me. Um, it's one of the most realistic views on staying alive that I've seen. Because you say to somebody, if you like cutting and engaging in self-harm, do that if it'll keep you alive. And I think that that will make a lot of suicide professionals wince, but it's realistic. Yes. And I also say when you're cutting like that, try to learn to do it without anger and self-loathing. My cutting went from anger, frustration, self-loathing to someone else cutting on me in a, in a BDSM scene. And it went into great joy and sexual satisfaction. And, oh, look, I can bleed. You know, that was great. So again, you transform because everything changes. Remember the fourth dimension of gender, time. Time passes, nothing stays the same. Not a goddamn thing. Everything changes. Your most cherished values shift and change. Your body shifts and change. Your notions of gender change all the time. Our conversation, we've changed each other irrevocably. You went, oh, well, you know, I think you, you, you tossed it off. You know, oh, I, I think that, you know, that the, the, the tipping point of gender wasn't so much about acceptance. I went, oh as it was awareness. And I'm like, well, that's new. Hey, thank you. Did you know that when you learn something new, you grow brain cells? Yeah, and that's why it feels so good to learn <laughs> something new. You go, woohoo! It's, it's, it's a hoot. 
<laughs> Can I ask a question that is simple, but Please. just because I think the gender is so complicated, but oftentimes we look for the most complicated answer when it is simple. And I wonder, you transitioned many years ago in the binary sense from male to female. Had you not done that, do you think you would have been able to say as definitively as you did, I'm not a man and I'm not a woman? I've thought about that. If I had not physically transitioned, but instead, and when I say physically, I mean hormonally and surgically, but if I started living as a woman, okay, here's the thing, here's the thing, to, 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 to make that question make sense, gender expression and gender identity, two totally different things. My gender identity, not man, not woman. My gender expression, pretty girl. I like being pretty. I like being sexy. It's just so satisfying. I like to make people smile. I like to make people wink at me. I think that's just wonderful. And I can still do it as a cute little old lady. But if I had gone for my gender expression in the 80s, the only place for me, and this is where class enters into gender, would have been on the street. No job. That still comes down to non-binary folks, visibly non-binary. I'm non-binary. I'm not genderqueer. I'm not visibly trying to mess up the signals because my gender expression is girl. Love it. So... Because I was coming out of the middle class, I was living as an actor and scene designer and telemarketer at the time when I went through with my transition and phone sex operator, I would have been able to continue working at phone sex. But that really didn't pay the rent. You know, I was, I was running up credit cards in those days. It was hard to go and find a job looking like not man, not woman. And I ask that really because nowadays there are people in the media, you can find other non-binary people and we know that that is an option. But back then it was like, I'm not man, I'm not woman. I think like my response would have been like, that's not a choice you have, you know? <laughs> yeah. So to be able to think that and claim that to me is rather remarkable back then. Back then the the the, the question was, Yes, the, the response was, that's not a choice. But the question was, well, then what are you? And I'd say, I'm not man, not woman. No, but then what are you? I'm not man, I'm not woman. And you say the future of gender is when that question can be, go, oh, okay. That's the future of gender. Not doesn't mean everybody is that. It just means, oh, I get it. Sure, no problem. That is such a great place to leave it on. I have one more question, mm. which is a simple one and involves a binary, actually, <laughs> now that I think of it. In your documentary, you say that your name is Kate Bornstein and you say your name is Kate Bornstein. Is one correct? No. Growing up, it was always my father insisted on Bornstein and my brother insisted, my older brother insisted on Bornstein. My mother and I would look at each other and go, whatever, just spell it right, dear. And that's how it is. Sometimes it comes out of my mouth, Bornstein. Sometimes it comes out of my mouth, Bornstein. I'm honestly unaware of it. And it does not matter to me. <laughs> so Kate Bornstein, not man, not woman, not Bornstein, not Bornstein. <laughs> that's your heart. 
And that was Kate Bornstein. If you'd like to hear our most recent conversation, that is right above this one in the podcast feed. And then as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please help us spread the word on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. When you post a tweet or an Insta story or post on Facebook, things like that are really the biggest way you can help our show continue making new episodes every week. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.